so stupid he comes across in front of me every single time he overtakes. Where does he want me to go off the track? No! Stop talking to me in the braking zone! I have just one question for you all. Are you ready for Will Smith's Miami? Welcome back to Motorsport 101. Welcome. Today is May the 8th, 2018 is when we're recording this 138th episode of the Motorsport 101 podcast. This is going to be a bit of a different episode along with us. Uh, of course, we have uh, Ryan King joining us from the Bronx in New York. Hello, Ryan. Yeah, it, it feels so empty. It feels so empty. <laughs> Ah, uh, yes. Uh, trust me, we, we know that MetLife Stadium is not very active around this time of year, but it'll pick up. <laughs> I am, of course, RJ O'Connell from uh, from Motorsport 101's uh, second American headquarters in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Where is Andre Harrison, you ask? Andre Harrison is not going to be on this episode. He has um, some very good, he has commitments with his family and he has commitments at work. Um, so he is taking this episode off, but Dre will be back for this week's episode of Bike Live on Motorsport101.net, um, which will be a very, very fun one as they're going over the MotoGP Spanish Grand Prix and all of its support events. Um, day of contrasting fortunes for Repsol Honda here. Uh, Marquez flossed and flew his way to victory, and Danny Pedrosa, well... You're, you're probably wondering how we ended up in that spot. We'll get into that <laughs> on this week's episode of Bike Live with Andre Harrison and Lewis Sutterby. Um, But we are going to have a feature-packed show. Um, we're going to talk about Formula One's proposed race in the city of Miami, Florida. And we're going to have a sports car extravaganza. Only three of them can make the cut, so we're talking about the six hours of Spa Franker Shop. We're talking about the IMSA Sports Car Challenge at Mid-Ohio, and we're talking about Super GT's Fuji 500 kilometers, the Golden Week Classic. It's going to be a great time, um, and definitely thank you so much for listening on motorsport101.net. You can listen to us on SoundCloud and on Apple Podcasts, whichever fine podcasting platform you support. Um, you can find us on youtube.com forward slash motorsport101, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101, our Twitter is motorsport underscore 101. Our personal Twitter handles are at Harrison101HD for Dre, at Ryan Eric King for King, and at RJ O'Connell with two N's and two L's. And our and if you really, really like us and wish to support the show financially, you can back us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Among the many perks, for just $5 a month, you can get early access to both this show and for Bike Live. And for $10, you can have access to the community Discord and listen in as the show is being recorded. It is a great time. Hello to uh, hello to our friends who are listening to the show here. Um, and thank you very much, whatever you're listening live or on early access or when it comes out for the general public. Thank you so much for all of your continued support. Right. Um, so there's not a whole lot in Formula One happening uh, as we lead up to the Spanish Grand Prix, except for the fact that there is a, a brand new venue coming to the calendar. We think 
It's gonna be in the city of Miami. We're here to talk about it right after this musical interview. Hey, um, hey, what do you what do you know the city of Miami, Florida for? Hmm, I would say I would know them best for uh, NBA players buying out an hour of airtime to announce that they're going to Miami, Florida. Hmm, right. Um, they had a pretty good football team one year, didn't they? Yeah, that that one year where they ran the table and went undefeated. And, you know, it, it you know, created a movie franchise involving a pet detective and other stuff. Yeah, uh, a great movie franchise, which, you know, let's not mind the fact that some of that really, really aged bad. Damn. Yeah. Um, um, what else is Miami notable for? Uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson and also his alma mater, the University of Miami, which were the ultimate college football team way back in the day. Um uh, entertainers Pitbull in Florida, who seem to headline every other year's uh, WrestleMania concerts with like five different <laughs> theme songs that they've chipped in just for the event. Um, and pretty soon, as we learned over the past week, it may soon be host to a Formula One Grand Prix event in the middle of downtown Miami. The following statement follows from Sean Bratches, the Managing Director of Commercial Operations of Formula One. Earlier today, as in May 2nd, 2018, the City of Miami Commission took an important step by adding an item to their upcoming agenda that, if approved, will make way to bring Formula One to downtown Miami next season. We appreciate the community's interest in hosting a Formula One race and look forward to working with local officials and stakeholders to bring this vision to life. With over half a billion fans worldwide, Formula One is the greatest race, school, race spectacle on the planet, and Miami's status is one of the world's most iconic and glamorous cities combined with its robust tourism infrastructure makes Miami the perfect destination for Formula One and its fans. Again, these are all from Sean Bratches, the Managing Director of Commercial Operations for Formula One, who is very, very excited about the potential of a Miami Grand Prix on the calendar starting in October 2019. King, what was your reaction when you first heard this news? Uh, I would say instantly a bit sad because knowing that Miami is getting a race, New York definitely won't be getting a Grand Prix. And I, I see the reasons why New York isn't getting a Grand Prix. We're really close to Montreal and various other reasons. But secondly, I'm kind of excited. Yeah. Um, for reference, this would be the first Formula One race held on a street circuit in the United States. Since the ill-fated United States Grand Prix that was held in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, if you remember the Phoenix Grand Prix, you remember it for one of two reasons. Either that's the race where John O'Lacy had his breakout performance in the Tyrrell in 1990 and damn near stole a win off of Ayrton Senna at his prime. Or you remember it for the 1991 race that was so sparsely attended that urban legend decrees that it was once outdrawn by an ostrich festival in the same city. But this, um, I don't think it will have much trouble drawing a crowd. It's Miami. It's one of the most happening places, not just in the United States, but potentially in all the world. 
There's a lot of nightlife, so you'll never be bored. Um, and the track layout itself, um, we got some comments about it. It'll pass by some landmarks, but man, uh, King, fair to say that if you look at this track layout that's been proposed by numerous outlets, um, would you need to see a doctor if you look at it for more than long, longer than four hours? Yes, you would definitely need to go see a doctor because you, you need to make sure that that's okay. Yeah, you definitely don't want, um, well, let's, uh, let's just, uh, examine this layout. It's, they're taking inspiration from the track that many now fear. <laughs> and that's the crazy thing is that we now fear that it's going to replace the prestigious Azerbaijan <laughs> Grand Prix of Baku. But there will be elements of Miami street races past and present. Now, fans know that Miami recently held a Formula E race in its inaugural season. Before that, Miami had on and off dalliances with street races for the CART slash Champ Car World Series last running in 2003. Um, those races were centered around uh, Biscayne Boulevard, which is a major thoroughfare. And this, uh, this proposed Miami circuit layout will run through not just through Biscayne Boulevard, but also through the Bayfront Park. Um, it's going to run through Bayside Marketplace, which is a big shopping center. It'll run through Port Miami to cross this bridge that goes right over the port. And it'll also bypass uh, the American Airlines Arena, home of the Miami Heat. Um, this, is a, uh, this is a rather divisive track layout, though, shall we say? Mostly because of the long run up down the bridge and then this hairpin section that curves and goes right into the other lane um shall we say it looks uh very uh hmm. what's what's the word i'm looking for king mm, phallic yeah i i wasn't actually gonna use phallic but <laughs> that's i mean there's no cut and dry way around it um I have heard comparisons to uh, the Avis circuit in Germany. Ooh, um, I, I, have, I, have, I have issues with that comparison. <laughs> go ahead, King. Lay it well, on me. Well, well the, the, the Avis in Berlin, that was, again, a street circuit. Well, it was, partial, it was mostly a street circuit with a huge bank corner. They were planning on building a southern bank corner, but obviously the Second World War stopped that, and... I would say, arguably, if it had continued in the, in its original form, it would probably be the most dangerous racing circuit of all time. So, right. comparing it to the office is not a good comparison. <laughs> it's not a good comparison. Right. It's it's definitely unique in the in the sense that the Pontiac Aztec is a unique car. Again, we don't know how this is going to race because what we're going off of is we're going off of a Google Maps uh, sketch of what the track might look like. Um, this this proposal does have some serious hep behind it because Stephen Ross is the owner of the Miami Dar uh, Dolphins um, who is putting in a lot of money. And again, this is all pending a public vote here um, if the public decides to go ahead with it there well it's, it's not a, it's not up to a public vote oh it's it's, oh, it's, oh. it's up to a vote by the miami city council oh okay i see I, I forgot i forgot one step of the bureaucratic process it's fine yeah <laughs> so i assume uh i assume Stephen ross has a good relationship with the city of miami because uh 
he is probably one of the staunchest owners in the NFL when it comes to, in terms of relocation and community outreach. Uh, he's been very adamant that he's not going to move uh, the Dolphins out of Miami. Uh, also, he was the only NFL owner to vote against the my uh, vote against the Oakland Raiders moving to Las Vegas. Right. So fair to say that if Stephen Ross does get his wish and he does get this race to go into Miami, fair to say he's going to do everything in his power to try and keep this race as long as it is financially viable. Yes. Uh, he says from football and soccer to tennis and motorsports, Miami deserves only the best in music, food, art, fashions, and sports and entertainment. And that is exactly what we plan on delivering with a Formula One race. The proposal being voted on next week will see the proposed Miami Grand Prix run for 10 years. Which is insane! I, I've You rarely ever hear a city getting a 10-year contract for a race. Like most recently, uh, the New York City E-Pre has a 10-year contract for Formula E. And that, again, that's iffy on that part if that contract will run the distance but a 10-year contract to host a formula one grand prix that is unheard of yeah and i think it's also like a reflection of the changing attitude between the change of ownership between the the carry bratches and broad era compared to the birdie era who ecclestone had a very short-term view in regards to race in the united states um with Carrie and Bratches and Braun at the helm, I think they're looking at this more of a long-term deal. Yes, America's motor racing scene is still dominated by NASCAR and IndyCar, but in light of recent news, with the with the news that the France family may be able, maybe looking to sell the family business, um, there is an opportunity for Formula One to get a serious foothold that it hasn't had in the country in arguably about fifty years. Yeah. Chase Carey say, told ESPN, adding a destination event in a city like New York, Miami, or Las Vegas, that raises the profile and helps people engage. Doing more online so that people can get closer to the sport realistically at the core that is engaging fans, and it's engaging in different ways. Though I'd say the one thing about this Miami race, the best the best thing to help it actually come to fruition is probably the worst aspect of this race. The fact that... Uh, one, it's centered around that Miami is a destination city. That, you know, people are going to come to the, this race because it's in Miami. Because of that, uh, the circuit has to be located in pretty much the middle of downtown Miami. Which is, as we see by the circuit layout, not the most... Uh, it, it doesn't create the the best possibility in terms of a really creative racing circuit. Like, mm, the the bridge circuit is, I would say, it's okay. The, the, the bridge is by far wide enough. It is, it is ten lanes wide. Three lanes yeah. in each direction with two hard shoulders on each side. It's, it's right. by far wide enough to, to actually do this well. Yeah, that's the thing that these uh, Google Maps don't tell you, is that this bridge is massive. They are not going to have the sort of problem like you have at the uh, at the castle at Baku or in some of the parts of Singapore where you go across the bridge. Oh no, there is plenty of real estate to raise, and that means these are going to be some wide-ass open DRS zones. Assuming that's still a thing by the time this comes into fruition, it's going to be a thing by the time this comes to be. 
Well, um, yeah, there, there's going to be DRS next year, which they kind of said is going to be the first year of this race. Yeah. So what would Miami mean for the future of the United States Grand Prix Coda? What do you think would happen with that? Ooh. The contract runs until 2022. Uh, it's got a fairly secure place in the calendar, though disappointing ticket sales and uncertainty over local government funding. Um, they've gotten over that. They've got concert every year. But where would Miami fit in with that? That is probably my largest worry because right now the plans for this race is to host a Miami Grand Prix would likely be in October. Either slotting, most likely slotting in right before the United States Grand Prix. Right. And then that begs the question, where do you slot in Mexico City? And then how do you turn that around from the leg uh, where you go from Singapore, from Russia to Japan, and then turn around and go right back to North America? Well, the mm, the widely circulated rumor is that uh, the Azerbaijani government have already sold safety equipment to uh, to the city of Miami. So, in theory, it seems like Baku might not even be on the calendar. And then that would leave space on the calendar for Russia to move back to the spring. Right. And that's the craziest thing. Like, if you had told us, any one of us, that by the time Baku came off the calendar, we'd be pretty sad about it. <laughs> You'd have been lying. Because Baku's coming off of two very entertaining Debatable on whether or not you call it good, but they were entertaining races um, to make way for Miami, which, again, honestly, it's it's going to be a much bigger market. Uh, the potential for a race in Miami is a lot bigger than it is in Baku. And I That's, think time zone wise, it's going to do wonders. It oh. like if if they host it like, you know, around 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, it's in prime time in Europe. Yes, that would be absolutely perfect. Um, other races that might potentially fall off the calendar to make way, um, Hockenheim, Spa, Franker, Chomp, and Suzuka, the latter two, I don't think they're coming off. Hockenheim's at the most risk because we know Germany's as, uh, has been, shall we say, on and off in recent years. Though, yeah. though Formula One, though Liberty Media have been pretty much adamant, that's like, don't worry about us adding Miami and races in Asia, we are still, we still want to keep the tradition in Europe alive, which to me, the tradition, like traditional, there are five races in Europe that you can't drop from the calendar. French Grand Prix, German Grand Prix, Belgian Grand Prix, Italian Grand Prix. British Grand Prix is a soft fifth, but yeah. Yeah, well, see, the thing is, they've they've dropped three of those five that you've just mentioned. Yeah. Some for stupider reasons than others. <laughs> if you'll recall, the French Grand Prix did not have a home until this year because uh, Matty Corr was way in the middle of absolutely nowhere and Paul Ricard was not ready to host an F1 race. And arguably, it may still not have the infrastructure, but hey, it's a Formula One race in France again. Yeah, I mean, I think that was... One of the biggest reasons to me why Miami is a lot more appealing than Baku, that the fact that Baku, I believe the like maximum capacity was like 30,000 seats. Yeah, it has the lowest capacity. And in fairness, people were thinking like, oh, it's it's a race in a country that I'm not familiar with. It won't draw 10 people. So, you know, you don't want to just build like 100,000 seats and have nobody turn up. 
So that was smart on their behalf. Yeah. Um, Miami, I think we're going to see a whole lot more people. If this is successful, we're going to see this uh, rival attendance that you would see at like Long Beach, for instance, or any other iconic street race. Um, there's definitely a lot of potential here. Um, will it come to fruition? Well, the city council's got to vote on it. And if it does, we'll definitely see how it races because yeah, it's probably look like an entertaining venue. I'd probably say when Stephen Ross wants to do something, he'll get it done. And it's pretty much down to the city council. Cause so, uh, RJ, you've heard of the, the international champions cup, like the now almost, uh, I would I wouldn't say iconic, but it, it it is now a perennial part of like the the international soccer calendar where you have teams coming coming over here to the United States for preseason. Oh tournaments. yes, yes, I yes I am familiar with that. They basically that, have all the top European teams going to the United States. Uh, the company that organizes that that organizes that competition is run by Stephen Ross. Yeah, that's a that's another big. Uh, sporting impact that Ross has already given us to the uh, to the American sporting landscape, not just the Dolphins. You know, this is this is looking like it's got some legs. Now the big question is, and I believe the most que- pressing question of all, which Miami or Miami-adjacent celebrity is going to be the Grand Marshal for this race? Mm, I, I want to say solely due to his connection to the Fast and Furious movies, it has to be Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I don't think there's any other choice. I mean, he's not going to get called out on by Smash Mouth for um, <laughs> certain bedroom activities, <laughs> like, like some other uh, some other rappers in the business. God, it's surreal. That's surreal to think. Um, probably Pitbull in a close second. Yeah, it'll be Pitbull. Just Pitbull is guaranteed to have a co- a concert within the first three years of this race. And hey, how many uh, how many kilometers are in a Formula One Grand Prix? Three hundred five. <laughs> what's what's one of Pitbull's many nicknames, Mister Three Hundred Five? Yeah, because that's, that's Miami's area code. Wonderful. Um, October twenty nineteen, the projected date for the inaugural Miami Grand Prix. But of course, this is still pending the city council vote. This will be a story we're going to watch, especially as we get nearer and closer to the reveal of the twenty nineteen. Formula One and FIA calendars. Yeah, I have one last question before we head on mm-hmm. to the next segment. Do you do you think we could end up in back in Malay's era Formula One where we have three United States Grand Prix? <laughs> I think that's the I think that's the goal that um that Liberty Media want to achieve because they have been pushing US expansion hard. Yeah. Um and I would not be surprised if they tried it wedge in a third u.s grand prix event at somewhere be it at another street course like in las vegas although i've surveyed the scene at las vegas uh at least around the new football stadium and the new hockey arena i'm not sure where you're gonna run there yeah compared to what las vegas was in the 70s and like the early 80s when they ran the caesar's palace grand prix it was literally the script was literally uh, you know, where all the casinos were, and then pretty much two to three blocks behind each casino was just, like, a sea of parking lot. Yeah, which uh, contributed it yeah. greatly. Yeah, it, it contributed to the uh, to the malaise of the Caesar Palace Grand Prix. 
and like none of that exists anymore. Now it's like all like random subdivisions now, which partially caused the Great Recession. But we'll we'll move on from that. Right. We'll move on to that, and Oakland will move on from its uh, football team for a second time uh, coming soon. Um, let us then take a quick pause then and we'll uh, jump right into our sports car extravaganza because if it has if it has wheels and an engine and they keep score it's blatant gimmick infringement on our behalf and we apologize This is our sports car extravaganza portion of Motorsport 101. Um, this is one where we kind of just, if Dre was here, he was just going to be like, okay, kids, have the wheel. Dad's going to go have a nap in the backseat of the car. Yeah, don't, don't and, be like Pietro, sorry. Right. Um, so let's uh, start off with that when we got the news that during uh, Friday qualifying, Pietro Fittipaldi broke both of his legs in a qualifying crash at, during the six hours of Spa. Pietro was driving for the Dragon Speed Racing Team, their first drive with the Dallara-built BR Engineering 01 chassis when it looked as if the car had just completely straight-lined at Eau Rouge and impacted the wall head-on. Now, it didn't look like that bad of a hit, but it was clear that something was very wrong when he wasn't getting out of the car. Um, there wasn't a lot of updates for a while, and, and then we found out from an official FIA press release that Pietro Fittipaldi had suffered fractures in both of his legs because of this hit. Yeah, that is like something that you would see in like the early 80s where the leg still extended beyond the front axle where it's like, yeah, head onto the wall, he definitely broke both his legs. Like, no, we don't really expect to see injuries like that nowadays it was it was nothing it was a very very frightening scene and i obviously i think we're all very glad that pietro fittipaldi for the for the most part is going to be okay for this but that does uh but that does severely um ruin what it was going to be a great season for him he's of course well and his condition is stable he had uh operations on both of his legs uh, he had a complex fracture in his left leg. Um, he um, his uh, his his father was with him throughout the night, and of course, um, Pietro is on his way back to recovery. But this is going to be a long recovery that will unfortunately mean that, in terms of IndyCar news, Pietro Fittipaldi is going to miss his very first Indianapolis 500, where he was set to drive the number 19 Paysafe Dale Coin Racing entry uh, for that team, and he was looking every bit like he could be a uh, a solid contender in that race. So yeah. that of course creates a knock on effect of who is going to drive that number 19 car. Yeah. For the second, for the second time in two years, Dale Coyne has pretty much a race winning platform and they lose a driver to a serious injury. And this one, not even at Indianapolis 500 time trials, unlike Sebastian Bourdais last year, things would not get much better the day uh, in the days before this, um, the team that is colloquially known as Manor, but is officially known as um, Jesus, I can't even remember the name. It's 
it's very much a, a combination of alphabet soup here. Yeah, I got to check this out because I was like, it is. Yeah, it is officially entered as CEFC TRSM Racing, but you may know them as Manor. Um, four days ago, um, the news withdrew that uh, Manor was forced to withdraw from the weekend's event due to cash flow problems. Um, in a statement from the team that says the required funds for Janetta were due some time ago, and whilst we understand that TRS, the Chinese firm that basically are the team's main sponsor, has been working with its sponsors to short the issues without payment, Janetta cannot allow the cars to race. It added that Janetta remains committed to working with Manor and that the current situation is a short-term cash flow problem that should not protect, affect its participation in the Le Mans 24 hours. Um, King, do you think it's a short-term issue or is there something more sinister lying beneath the surface of this press release from Janetta? I, I don't know. Like, I assume we'd have to wait until uh, Le Mans comes around to really know but it's like, I hope, I hope it's just like a short-term issue and just preparing myself for it to be the worst. Right. Um, so out of all of this, that puts three LMP1 privateers on the back foot on a weekend where everybody was fearing that the whole of the LMP1 privateer grid was going to be on the back foot because equivalents of technology... Um, has been implemented. There are provisions that the LMP1 privateers have to remain competitive in comparison to Toyota, who are the only factory team and the only hybrid in the field. But then you look at things like the the rumors that to that the WEC was going to give out one lap stop and hold penalties if they dare go faster than an LMP1 hybrid, or the fact that they had instituted maximum stint lift lengths uh, of 17 laps compared to Toyota's 19 uh just on the week of the race so if you look at it very cynically way you might think well um gerard Neveu really just wants toyota to win every race <laughs> and as the race developed yep toyota did uh lock out the front row provisionally until the number seven car was disallowed from qualifying so that meant that sebastian Wemi, kazuki nakajima and uh wait who's that Spanish dude with the long hair and the beard? Is that Jesus? <laughs> no, it's Fernando Alonso when he starts his first WEC race from pole position. Yeah. And um so that happened. Sebastian Buemi started the race um and quickly went to uh putting the field um in a world of hurt, shall we say? Uh, the number seven car was due to start from the pit lane one lap down because it was thrown out of qualifying. It took them by the halfway point of the race to catch up and get to second place. Uh, but in the end, Toyota just simply dominated the race. They took a one-two finish. Uh, the number eight of Alonzo, Buemi, and Nakajima finishing ahead of the seven of Mike Conway, uh, Jose Maria Lopez, and Kamui Kobayashi. Just 1.4 seconds between them in what was a bit of a... Um, a stage finish, shall we say? Yeah, it, it's it seems so. Like uh, I see some people getting upset about saying, "Oh, there shouldn't be team orders." I'm like, this is endurance racing. You kind of like team orders are completely necessary. 
Right. Yeah, and it's just like, now team orders are bad. After a week ago, we were just like, well, why didn't we have team orders earlier? I mean, granted, it is also like, you know, I, I kind of see the point that like, okay, Toyota's pretty much going to be the only realistic factor. They should at least let their cars fight for the win. But at the same time, they have a championship to worry about, and they would rather like take the one to finish, get the maximum points that they can, and just try and put this one to bed before they get to the race that they actually want to win, and that's the 24 hours of Le Mans. Yeah, and, and I'm pretty sure at Le Mans, like, definitely, they don't, they do not want their cars racing each other. Right. Um, out of all this, it seemed like we have an intriguing, the best of the privateers was probably the number one rebellion racing orica of Andre Lauderer, Neil Yachty, and Bruno Senna, which... If that was in, let's say, a factory Porsche, that's a team that could have easily lapped the field. Yes. Um, as it stands, I mean, their pace was still good, and I want to kick this over to some of the analytics done by the folks at the B Pillar because we're gonna we're gonna try and unpack some of this uh, this pace here. Uh, so Mike Conway, uh, in terms of the fastest thirty laps that he did in this race, he had he was the quickest driver. Second, Kamui Kobayashi. And third was Fernando Alonso, the quickest driver in his car. Uh, now, the slowest of the Toyota drivers was Jose Maria Lopez. In terms of his average, he was doing about a two-minute two .5. Andre Lauder was doing about a two-minute .6 in a car that was consistently about one and a half to two seconds slower throughout the whole of the race. It had probably no realistic chance of winning at this stage. Let's be perfectly honest with ourselves. So Andre and Neil and Bruno were just wheeling this thing, and then they got disqualified because they had worn out the uh, the safety plank under the car too much. <laughs> but it's not all bad for Rebellion because the three car of Thomas Laurent, Gustavo Menezes, and Matthias Besch did take up the podium. So we do have a privateer on the podium, Rebellion Racing standing out as the best of the rest in the field. And hey... Things were good for Baikal's racing, too. Uh, despite the fact that they clearly had the slowest car, their Nissan-powered prototype did not break down, and they finished fourth. What a world. The Baikal's does not break down. Yeah, it's looking like, by manner of attrition, Baikal's just had a great, great weekend. Uh, and Tom Dillman did some serious work putting in about 90 laps in the car. That's more than any other driver did during the race um now it was looking like there was going to be a third factor in this field and that was the number 17 SP racing car of stefan sarazan igor rujev and matavos isakayan uh until the second half of the race where isakayan's br1 br01 this is the dolara built prototype that is uh partially designed by the russians uh, we knew they had a big crash, and I had overheard that they had a much bigger crash than the cameras uh, had let on because the race cameras did not pick this up until we got um, some photographs that were released earlier today and uh, that Matavos Zakayan walked away from this. Um, this was uh, this was not good. It was not good that the nose of the that the car was completely ass over tea kettle at the top of all rouge 
That is that is something that you rarely ever see, and you don't even want to even dream about seeing. So the photo was taken by the folks at BelgianMotorsport.com. Um, this is like the clearest image we have, because if you look to the left of one of the GTM Aston Martins cresting the top of Al Rouge, you'll see that Isakai and S&P racing car is already... Um, it has its nose basically dug into the ground at this point, and it's about to flip over twice and land on the top of the tire barriers at the outside of Al Rouge, about where Kevin Magnussen came to a complete stop in 2016 when he wrecked. Remember, folks, Al Rouge is not dangerous after they paved over the runoff. Yeah, that is... Mm. So now, King, we have what may be a serious problem that's affecting one-third of the grid who are all using the same BR1 chassis. Fittipaldi's crash didn't seem like it should have had the outcome that it did, and now, obviously, one of their cars is just blown over at the top of Al Rouge. Um, if anybody knows anything about the history of Lamar, you'll know that sometimes cars are prone to go airborne at the end of the Mulsanne Strait. You only have to ask when Peter Dumbreck, who flew right into the trees in 1999, and then they had to literally smooth out the road to prevent anything like that from happening. And even then, you could still catch air. Ask Alan McNish in 2011, who nearly vaulted in the grandstands in his Audi, or Anthony Davidson, who got sent airborne by a Ferrari in 2012. Yeah, because these things are like, uh, LMPs are just like massive aerofoils. Yeah, and uh, when they get airborne, it's not going to be a, it's going to be a rough landing, let's yeah. just say. Obviously, glad that Matavos is okay, but this, um, this leads to like a potential worst case scenario for Lamar, where if Manor don't get paid... If Dragon Speed are intent, because they have already said, Elton Julian, the team principal, has already said, we're not going to race with the BR01 until we get some answers on how this had happened to our driver. Um, and now, potentially, there's the worry that both of S&P Racing's cars, including the one that is set to be piloted by Jensen Button, who is going to test the car later, you could be looking at, there were, five, there were 10 cars entered in LMP1 for Le Mans. There could be as little as five in a worst-case scenario, by the time we actually get to Lamont. The two Toyotas, the two Rebellions, and the one by calls Nismo. Yeah, this is scary, where it seems like, the in terms of readiness, there was a massive spread between the privateers that were ready and the privateers that were seemingly scrambling at the last minute to get something together. I think they were... I think they were all very ready. I just don't think... Um, Manor, I think, were obviously behind the gun, and that's yeah. a real shame for the teams that they've assembled for the cars. I definitely hope they get off track. S&B Racing seemed prepared, but my goodness, I don't think they could have prepared for their cars literally launching airborne and breaking people's legs. Um, and then that leads into the whole thing where cynically reveal, well, why would the WEC make a big push to get privateers back in the sport only to game the system against them with equivalents of technology? Oh, I, I don't know. I, I it, To me, it feel, it always felt like the Super Season was a throwaway season. But there was, going into the season, I genuinely felt like there was an opportunity for the, I mean, my goodness, back in the 
days where the rebel where the rebellion lmp ones and the bicalls lmp ones were getting tr boat raced by lmp twos that was the thing where they were like that's it we have to have like a crisis meeting a summit about the future of lmp1 privateer and this is what they came out with and honestly does it look any better than what we had before no like i i still have that feeling that they're kind of uh treading water until the 2019 2020 season that they're kind of like it's gonna take a while for us to get to our vision we're just gonna have one really long year to get the calendar to just where we want it to be and then this is the new wec Right. This, um, again, there is a new set of top flight regulations coming out in 2020. Um, what will come out of that? Who knows? Hopefully it's something good. And this, it really shouldn't take, a, I know it's easy to look at this and think, well, this is obviously, well, they're trying to rig the races for Fernando. He did a very good job, all things considered. Um, the sports car crowd was expecting, all right, well, Fernando's just going to get all the plaudits because he's the Formula One guy. Um but he was, he was genuinely as quick as his more experienced teammates, Buemi and Nakajima, who need no introduction to diehard sports car racing fans. They are proven commodities, and um, that is definitely going to be a competitive team. But I certainly want to think that on the other side of the Toyo Garage, they've got to be thinking, like, we know we're fast enough to win this race. Yeah, like, according to the B-Pillar, Mike Conway, fastest guy out there. Yeah. So let's... um. So let's dive into the subclasses, which, if you're looking for silver linings out of the six hours of Spa, um, there are good ones. GT had a great race that came down to the final hour of the race. Um, in the end, it was the uh, it was the 66 Ford of Olivier Plas, Stefan Mocha, and Billy Johnson Jr. of the Ural USNA came out in a thrilling battle with the Porsches and Ferraris that went down, like I said, to the final hour of the race, and no dramas at all for the new BMW M8s and Aston Martin Vantages, which were making their series debuts. It seems like GTE always has to come up in the clutch when the top classes just kind of seem to fall flat in their face. Yeah, where it, uh, it, it kind of feels like there's so much diversity of machinery in this class but for some reason it feels like one, like, not not across the entire season, but you roll up at a race venue and one car is clearly better than the rest. Yeah, Olivier Pla made the move on Richard Leitz in his number 92 Porsche with 45 minutes left to go in the race, and Leitz was on uh, worn tires that just couldn't hold up. Ultimately, he slid off, him and uh, his co-driver slid off the podium, and it was an interesting day of, of two sides where um the 66 Ford won uh the 66 Ford won the race and the 67 which was driven by Harry Tinknell uh started off in the barriers at about the same point where Fittipaldi crashed yeah yes and even though like i said um it wasn't a race where the Aston Martins and the new BMWs really shone but they got to the end of the race with no major hiccups and that's gonna bode very well for them that's a good foundation to build upon um in terms of the uh the fastest drivers of the car it was bruni who did uh who did the best average it was a very very closely matched field uh but it was bruni who was the fastest in the number 91 porsche 911 rsr now we move up to lmp2 um where we have uh let's say two of Formula One's more meme-worthy former drivers in the field? <laughs> yes. 
Oh dear. And uh, they had a pretty decent day, but I think uh, first and foremost we got to talk about how John Eric Vernon just cannot stop winning. He just can't stop winning lately. Um, yeah, it doesn't matter what car he steps into. He's just gonna go out there. Doesn't doesn't matter how, but he's gonna walk away at the race victory. John Eric Byrne coming off of his third win of the Formula E season, and he's probably about to seal up the championship in due time in Formula E. Uh, stepped into the number 26 G-Drive Racing Orica, um, which he shared with Roman Rusinov and Andrea Pizzatola, and went on and won the race for that team. And he had the second fastest driver average of the LMP2 field, slightly slower than Guido Vandergarda, whose racing team Netherlands Delara had some electrical problems during the race that ultimately affected their, um, their outcome in the event. And just ahead of, um, is that? It can't be. No. It is. After Jasmine Jafar in third place, it's Pastor Maldonado who had the fourth best average. Um, but this was pretty much G-Drive's race to lose. Um, and I believe it was the, uh, it was, there was some competition from the number 38 Jackie Chan DC racing team entry. Um, but ultimately it was the, uh, it was the 38 that came home in second ahead of the uh, Signatech Alpine, uh, the number 36 car in third, and J-Drive pick up a win in LMP2. And also Aston Martin take a 1-2 finish in a GTM with the older Aston Martin Vantages, which still look very, very good. Yes, if they, I still, do say so they still look They still look competitive despite being old. Yeah, and there was almost an upset in GTM because the new-to-the-category TF Sport team uh, damn near wanted off of the factory Aston Martin of Paul De Lalana, Pedro Lamy, Matthias Lauda, who've been bossing this category for a couple of years now. It's the 98 Aston who takes it over the number 90 TF Sport Aston, but it was still a very good race and just an extension of what we've already come to expect out of the GT class at the WEC. So, all in all, uh, WC sounded like it was uh, a mixed bag at Spa Franker Shop in the first race of the Super Season era. Does that sound about fair, King? Yeah, I mean, that's besides Le Mans, you could always expect a WEC uh, <laughs> race to be a mixed bag, where some classes provide excellent racing, other classes, room for improvement, and there's some up and down moments but nonetheless you're gonna get a really good experience you know watching this race right and of course lama is next month what can we expect out of the premier class will it be up to the uh, lower categories lmp2 and gte to steal the show once again will this finally be toyota's year and how will people react to it if it is all of that will be answered on a future episode of Motorsport 101. Now we should probably cut it back to something that's uh, in a bit better health, shall we say? Yep, that's right. It's time to go IMSA racing. It's time to go to Ohio. Oh, baby.
IMSA had the uh, the Acura Sports Car Challenge at Mid Ohio, two hour forty minute race. So if the uh, so if the uh, the um, the sits hour epic that was Spa Franker Shop was a bit too long for your taste. This one I feel was just about the right size. Yeah. Mid Ohio's first um, premier North American sports car race since two thousand thirteen. That of course key because it was the last year before the merger, and this was a weekend where. Uh, IMSA had the headline. It was not going to be sharing the bill with IndyCar. It had to be its own showcase. And boy, did it deliver, especially if you were driving a car that was badged by the race's sponsor. <laughs> right. So it starts on Saturday when Elio Castroneves, who I should remind everybody, one, he's not retired. One, uh, a second, he's not, he's still fast. Uh, and three, he hashtag still has magnificent hair. Yeah, that, that'll always be a thing. Elio Castroneves and his magnificent hair took pole position for the number seven um, Acura DPI that he shares with Richie, Ricky Taylor. Um, and from there, they just kind of book it, shall we say. Acura, Team Penske, we knew that they were building up to something great. And this was the race where be it because they finally got the package all settled or because conspiracy theory time it's because they're sponsored by Acura they have Acura cars X-Files theme intensifies um <laughs> Elio Castroneves and Ricky Taylor did pull off the victory and they got Juan Montoya and Dean Cameron in second so it's an Acura Penske 1-2 finish at mid-Ohio it's Elio Castroneves first IMSA win in a decade because he did some uh, he did some part time duties for IMSA back in the days of uh, back in the days of Penske's Porsche program. Never forget, God, I miss those. The RS Spider was so good. The RS Spider was so good that it could beat LMP one cars. Man, I miss those days. But these are still good. Um, Ricky Taylor was uh, once again fastest again, uh, owing to the wonderful Nowistum by the folks at the B Pillar. Uh, Ricky Taylor averaged quicker than any other driver in the field. Um, second place was Pipo Durrani in a car that was not competitive all weekend. Again, if you want a quick and consistent driver, you go with Pipo Durrani, who pretty much got the best out of a t- woefully uncompetitive um, ESM uh, Ligier Nissan. And uh, speaking of cars coming good... Um, we were wondering when Mazda and Team Yost were finally going to get it together, and they finished three and four and got one of their Mazda DPIs on the podium. Yeah, that to me that was probably the biggest story of the weekend. How competitive the Mazdas were! Like Penske, you, you knew that they were going to be competitive because they qualified. Both their cars were half a second quicker than the other DPIs. Oh yes, indeed, and that was that was again the breakthrough moment that I think um, Mazda and Team Yost were waiting for as well. They did so much ever since they pulled out halfway in the season and basically changed hands of the entire Mazda prototype operation from Speed Source to uh, to Yost Racing, and now it's starting to show. Now they're starting to find the confidence. Um, I believe it was uh, it was the 77 of Oliver Jarvis and uh, Tristan Nunez who finished the race in third. Uh, the 55 uh, was competitive. 
I should retract myself in saying that they finished third and fourth. The 55 was knocked out. Poor Spencer Piggott and Jonathan Barbarito. They had a good chance to be competitive for a podium, but that's still a great result. And uh, Felipe Albuquerque and Joao Barbosa in the number 50, on the number five Action Express Mustang sampling Cadillac DPI VR did get some good points in fourth ahead of the Taylor and Vanderzanda Wayne Taylor racing Cadillac. And that was prototype class, which looks like it's in much better shape competitively than the uh, top class in WEC right across the Atlantic. And guess what? The GT classes are still very competitive, although this was all of Porsche all day long. Uh, Lawrence Vantor and Earl Bamber just crushed the field, uh, winning the race uh, by a somewhat deceptive margin of uh, 1.6 seconds, but it looked like it was Porsche's race to lose. Um, Connor DeFilippi and Alexander Sims uh, finishing second for BMW. That, I believe, is their best result of the season. And third was Antonio Garcia and Jan Magnussen in the number three Corvette. Um, so once again, GTLM, even though one team clearly has the advantage up at the head of the field, it's always going to provide good racing. Yes. Always. You never have to worry about GTLM throwing up a shit show. <laughs> And of course, nobody is ever mentioning balance of performance. Nobody is mentioning safety cars getting in the way and jumbling the field all up. Wait, besides like the start, I believe, were there any safety cars during this race? No, there was there was like one minor incident at the start of the race when the uh, the 85 JDC Miller prototype got punted off the road. And that was about it. Yeah, like... For the amount of cars that they run in this championship at a circuit as, you know, tight and compact as mid-Ohio, I'm surprised they ran the whole thing without a safety car. Oh, yeah, dude. This uh, this track is narrow, and it's demanding, and the gray bits are where the track is, and where the green <laughs> oh, bits are not where the track is. And <laughs> it's a real racetrack. <laughs> Tiff and... Dell, circuit 28C. <laughs> right. Um... <laughs> Uh, out of all this, we had a clean race and no uh, grief when it came to traffic. GT Daytona, out of all of this, it seemed like it was a long time coming, but Lexus won. Dominic Bauman and Kyle Marcelli taking the first win in IMSA competition for the Lexus RCF GT3. And it was a nail-biter of a finish at the end because it looked like... Um, Alvaro Parent and Catherine Legg were about to break Lexus hearts at the very end because Parent put on a massive charge in his Meyershank Racing Acura NSX GT3. Catherine Legg had done her part to put them in contention. Parent was just running them down, but ultimately, uh, it was it was indeed uh, De Bauman and Marcelli who held them off by just point two seconds yeah. to take Lexus' first ever IMSA victory with yeah, this car it, it, it seemed like that last lap that it was leading down to that run to the line that they were setting it up trying to get a drag race finish but they just couldn't get there and the lexus was able to stay ahead chris dehard got a uh, very good a uh, our buddy chris got a good uh, vantage point of the, uh, the finish itself and it looked like there was just nothing between them at the end that was good good racing between <laughs> those two cars and you 
and what a result it was for Michael Shank racing on what is essentially their home track in what was a program where we didn't know what to expect out of them because, correct me if I'm wrong, are they still part-time? Yes, Michael Shank Racing is technically part-time. Yes, they're technically part-time, so this is not a full-season effort. This is their home race, and they wanted to get a good showing out of it, and boy, did they ever. And uh, the Park Place Racing, excuse me, the uh, the Paul Miller Racing Lamborghini of Brian Sellers and Madison, so rounding out the podium in GT Daytona. Um, this is one you'll definitely want to watch back on YouTube. It was a fun race. It was a clean race. Uh, go watch it on IMSA's official YouTube channel or listen on IMSA Radio, whichever you prefer. Uh, I thought it was a very good one. And, of course, to see Elio Castrodevas back in victory lane and just as happy as he's always been whenever he wins a race. I mean, my goodness, what a delight. skip over we skipped across the atlantic from belgium to the united states and now we're going to skip across the pacific from the united states to japan because who's ready to race on a thursday night bleeding into a friday morning baby yep it was it was a whole lot better than than thursday night football oh god but that's just like setting the bar right into the crust of the earth (laughs) that is that is true that is true the Autobac Super GT Series had its traditional Golden Week race, the Fuji 500 kilometers, on Friday, May the 4th, uh, at Fuji Speedway, 110-lap race. Uh, it was a fun one, and out of it came uh, the number 23 Nismo GTR of Sugio Matsuda and Ronnie Kitarelli, uh, taking the victory over the number 39 Denso Kabelkosar, driven by Heki Kovalainen and a Kamu- Wait, that's not Kamui Kobayashi. That's another Toyota top prospect show boy who was just absolutely on his game at his very first race in a GT500 car. Uh, they traded the lead back and forth. Uh, Quinarelli got a blinder of a start. He was third on the grid, but by the end of the first lap, he was already up in the first place. Kovalainen then made a charge, and he took the lead on lap 23, and it looked like they were going to hold that through the end of the race until the final round of pit stops. Um, the Nismo GTR came in one lap sooner, uh, got a better outlap than the, than the Sard Letsis, um, and that proved to be the difference as Quinarelli came out with a significant margin over, uh, Kovalainen in the final sin of the race. Kovalainen just not, could not claw it back. That is their third win at this race in the last four years, and for Sujiya Matsuda, who drove a very solid middle stint, this is a milestone for him because it's his 20th career win. He's the first driver to break through in the 20-win milestone. So he held the record, and he extended it. Right. The overall leaderboard as of this round, Matsuda is at 20 wins. Yuji Tachikawa, who finished third for Let's team Zent Cerebo, 
uh, has 18 wins. Satoshi Motoyama is uh, third with 16 victories, and Kinarelli is at 14 victories. He is now the winningest international driver in series history. But it was still a very good day for Lexus, who got four of their cars in the top five places. And Shosuboy, again, this was his first time at a GT500 car. He did not get a lot of time in practice because practice was fogged out yeah. and delayed well, to the afternoon. <laughs> if you've seen any photos of, of the fogged out practice, there was like no visibility. Like, I, didn't, I wouldn't even say it was safe to ride a bicycle out there. No, it was not. So practice got cadets down in 30 minutes. Um, he did not run qualifying. So he had very little time in the car apart from what they ran in practice. As little practice and warm up as they had. But um, while he is not quite as ridiculous as Shohei Otani, uh, it was definitely showtime in the middle stint of the race because he just kept holding on to the lead for as long as he needed to to give his team a chance of the win. And this is another driver, it seems like Toyota does not churn out a bad prospect. We talk about how good Red Bull's junior team is. I would wager that Toyota has just as good of a junior program because they have three guys in Suboy, Kenta Yamashita, and Rotomo Miyata who are all, like, can't-miss stars of the future. And before then, they had Ryo Hirakawa as part of that Toyota Young Driver program as well. Um Suboy is a driver on fire, by the way. He's won his last 11 out of 13 All-Japan F3 races, and he started the season with two podiums in both classes of Super GT competition. That's very good. Yeah, that is... Ooh, that is incredible. When even Heki Kovalainen, a driver who has a lot of Grand Prix experience and has seen among the best of the best come in in his time, names like Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel, when he's saying that this guy's a star of the future, um, you may be kind to heed word. And he, it's going to be sooner rather than later before he finds his way to a GT500 car. Um, compared to the Nissans, who did very well, and the Lexus, who did very well, um, Honda did not do as well. Uh, the best Honda was in 8th place. Jensen Button and Aoki Avamoto uh, only finished ninth for their efforts, which is, hey, it's still solid points, but it's not where they'd hope to be after finishing one two at Okayama, and this considering that Honda's biggest gain had been at power, um, the horsepower really didn't come into their own. So I think it might have been just a matter of the car was just not well balanced for this track. Yeah. Um, all of the uh, the full race will be seen on Nismo TV, and you can also watch the extended highlights on Jensen Button's YouTube channel. He had some very good comments after the race. He was very optimistic despite the tough time. They still got some good points, and they're coming at up to the next round at Suzuka, where they were the fastest in in-season testing on both days. So if you are very much pulling for the number 100 Rayburg NSS, there are still good times ahead to be had. On to a GT300, which is the more interesting of the classes sometimes. Um, this was kind of a cakewalk race for the number 55 Autobax racing team at Guri BMW of Shinichi, Takagi, and Sean Walkinshaw. They took pole position. They pretty much led every lap apart from the pit stop cycles. Uh, and Shinichi Takagi taking his 19th career victory, making him the all-time wins leader in GT300. 
Uh, he surpasses longtime co-driver Morio Nita, who held the record since 2004 at 18 victories by the with his last win coming in 2013. Now Takagi is the all-time wins leader, and he's do, and he's still competitive, um, even going into his late 40s, approaching his 50th birthday. He's still a very quick driver. He might be one of the best of all time in terms of his out-and-out performance. Yeah, and considering that it's, you know, GT300, he could probably, what, be there for, like, despite his age, be there for another three, four, five years. When you consider that the top three in terms of wins, Takagi, Nita, and Nobuteru Taniguchi, they're all within two wins of one another, and they're all still in competitive cars late in their careers. Every one of them could potentially reach 20. Yep. Uh, it looked like they would have some competition from the number 61 Subaru BRZ of Takato Iguchi and Hideki Mauchi, who were going to race for the team at the Nürburgring 24 hours. And then halfway through the race, uh. the engine let go. <laughs> this is the fourth mechanical retirement since the start of 2017 for the Subaru BRZ, which it has a very beautiful sounding and a very powerful boxer engine that was once used in the WRC cars. But... It's starting to seem like maybe it's a bit of a fragile pain point. Yeah, like, I'm relatively new to Super GT. I'm extremely new to GT300. I'm like, I really like BRZ, so I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick the BRZ to be my favorite. Little did I know <laughs> that I'm gonna go through a whole lot of pain this year. Right, yeah. And to be, to be fair, they are a team that's, you know... Obviously, they want to do successful, and they have had success before, but it feels like they're a team that's missing that extra element. They've they've had the resources and the drivers together to win multiple championships. I mean, for Christ's sakes, they are a, one of the few factory teams in GT300 right now. But until... Excuse me. Until they sort out the reliability, um, until they get some consistency in the car, they're... They're not going to be championship contenders. They're going to be good for, like, a race win here or there. And that's really a shame because that's one of the more popular cars in the category. Though not as popular as the APR Racing Toyota Prius, which finished second. Yes, that, of course, is a Prius, a mid-engine Prius powered by Toyota's old LMP1 powertrain with a hybrid stuck in the back of it. If, if, if that does not change your mind about the Prius, nothing will. If that, if that doesn't change your mind, if the fact that there is a car that is painted like the Mach 5 from Speed Racer that is in this field, nothing will. If, there, if, that, if that doesn't change your mind, if that doesn't change it, if the, if the Hatsune Miku colored car that has won three <laughs> of the last seven championships, it has a Vocaloid character on every discernible part of its, uh, part of its body work, if that doesn't change your mind, I don't know what will. Also, the new Nissan GTR GT3 got a podium out of this race, and good for them. Um, this was a fun race, and again, you'll definitely want to watch it back on Nismo TV and on Jensen Button TV, whichever you prefer. Uh, it's a good time. You may even hear myself get referenced at some point for not having a life, according to, <laughs> and I can't believe I'm saying this, newly elected counselor Sam Collins. Who picked up a victory in his local township um, during local elections in the UK? Um, just briefly, real quick, how did how did that end up going on the whole? 
on the uh, the the local elections or Super yes. GT. Um, <laughs> actually, I need to look up the results just to be sure that I'm not putting out fake news because that's <laughs> that's fine. Apparently, I've heard that. Um, UKIP only has like three seats, and I believe it's not confirmed yet that just one of them is uh, Farage's seat on question time. Okay. And even uh, that's not safe. Yes. So, looking at the results from like a top down view, uh, Labor now hold the majority of, of local seats. Like, they now hold 35%, uh, which is like the Conservative Party also hold 35%, but it's like they hold just a couple more seats more uh uh unfortunately sam's party the the liberal democrats uh they have they have lost seats but sam you won one you won one that had to have been like the peak day that he that after the race was done he found out he won the election (laughs) that's great then he proceeds to roast me over to YouTube chat for not having life. In fairness, he's not wrong. You're not wrong. You're getting roasted by politicians on the internet, RJ. This is 2018. Yeah, what a world I live in. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I clearly need some more to drink. Um, What else did we miss? Um, Kevin Harvick won a NASCAR race, and the France family might sell the sport. It's a big deal. Um, there's a uh, Birmingham Super Prix that might be coming back. Remember the Birmingham Super Prix um, for fans of motorsport in the mid to late 80s to early 90s? According to uh, one Graham Goodwin at Daily Sports Car, uh, Jensen Button will be driving the BR1 at Magny Court tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, as, as, I, as I alluded to, um, good luck, Jensen. Please be safe. We don't want to lose you for Suzuka in the rest of the season. Please don't, don't, don't get yourself injured in that Russian machine. I'm, I'm, I'm still baffled for words as to how Dolara ends up building a car that's not safe. I, I guess they just, they, they just got all the documents for it and just built it to their specification. Yeah, because, because that's the thing. Dolara has a rep, has all these single-seater contracts because they have such a sterling reputation for building a safe car. Evidently, this is something that the LMP2 one car has uh, has a glitch of its own where basically it will lose power uh, momentarily, then the power will come back on, but the power steering does not come back on. Ooh, and that, I assume that's just understeer city. Right, that, uh, that actually hampered uh, the racing team Netherlands in preseason testing a.k.a. the team that Guido Bantergaard erases for. <laughs> um, and also, um, you mentioned our, our colleagues at DailySportsCar.com. Um, last week, we did finish the uh, the piece about uh, the 1998 Fuji disaster and the uh, the careers and lives of Tetsuya Ota, the man who survived one of the most unsurvivable racing accidents of all time, and the driver who helped have shaved his life, the late, great Shinichi Yamaji. It's a wonderful piece. It's a long one. Uh, because that's just how it be sometimes. Uh, definitely check it out if you get a chance. It'll be on DailySportsCar.com. Yes. You highly recommend. Highly recommend. Yeah. Even King's highly recommending here, so you know it's good. Even like genuine uh, journalist types are recommending it. This is good. What, Even what? politicians are recommending it. 
<laughs> Again, what what the hell? What is my what is our lives respectively? Um, our baseball teams are good again. Um, Alejandro Igak is uh, trying to buy all of Formula E for six hundred million euro. How did he come up with this much money? Okay, I don't know. if you were to take a time machine back to about twenty thirteen, if you look up and down the GP two series grid, and if you're thinking right, there's one team whose owner is going to make a serious power play to be like a major. Uh, game breaker in all of motorsport and buy some series out for nearly a billion dollars how many of you would have had the dude that's running barwa adats no one no one nobody that was a decent team but you know they're not like an art racing or a dams shoot that's the irony they're gonna outlast dams oh my god (laughs) uh yes Birmingham Super Prix is back. Alejandro Gag has too much money. Maybe he could buy NASCAR. Ooh, since it's that'd now be, that'd being be interesting. floated around. Um, anything else that we missed? Ooh, I think we have everything covered. Pretty much everything we we haven't talked about, we'll probably talk about next week's show, because it's more closely related to Formula One. Right, because next week we are going to have a... Uh, we're going to have a stack weekend. We've got the pre-Day of Classics. we got the IndyCar Grand Prix of the Indianapolis Road Course. Uh, we have the Spanish Formula One Grand Prix. We have the 24 Hours of the Nürburgring. Which uh, will feature a very interesting demo lap. Oh, yes. It'll just be a demo lap, so it's not going to be full-on hog wild around the Nordschleife. Uh, say la vie, but hey, you do get the image of the 919 Evo going side-by-side with one of the Porsche 962s from it the heyday, the one that set the lap record at the ring. Uh, so that's going to be very fun, at least. God, I really wish they would have taken it for a full-on attack lap, though. Yeah, I, I, I know it's I know it's like a million safety hazards <laughs> waiting to happen. Yeah, I'm pretty sure like Neil Yanni's like, I wish I could, but insurance-related reasons. Yeah, Lloyd's does not have a policy that is big enough for this. No. And um, I think Porsche, like, we, they already have the lap record there, so they don't feel like they need to break it. Yeah, that's fine. That's that's perfectly fine, I guess. So, yeah, Spanish Formula One Grand Prix, IndyCar Grand Prix of Indianapolis, plus our other support tickets. We'll talk a little bit about the 24 Hours of the Ring as well. It'll all be on next week's episode of Motorsport 101. Stay tuned as well for this week's episode of Bike Live on the Motorsport 101 Network, where we talk about the Spanish Grand Prix of motorcycles. Um, a lot of stuff happened. Mark Marquez won. Mark Marquez is still very, very good at this thing. And Ducati are... Mm, man, <laughs> if, if you're a Ducati fan and you haven't seen the race, just don't. Just don't. Just save yourself. Just don't. Yes, Yokan Zarco has a contract signed for a factory team in 2019, and Kanan Safugalo is going to bow out after the World Superbike uh... round, Super Resort round in Imola. I know, but that man put his body through so much. I'm barely even a super sport fan. Like, I'm not even going to pretend to be, but that dude was like money. And yeah. he's doing it in a country that is not much of a motorsport country. <laughs> no. I still remember he, he broke that uh that public road speed record on a motorcycle. Golly. That dude's a 
based. Yeah. Also, uh, for this weekend's Fantasy Grand Prix, in applicable markets, F1 TV Pro will be available. Yay! Thank goodness. Yeah, F1 TV Pro will launch officially, I believe, this Friday. Right, so that as well is something to look forward to. So perhaps by the time you're listening to this, you'll already be binge-watching the entirety of the 2012 Formula 1 season, as you should, because that was one of the best seasons of recent memory. Yes. Right. So just one last bit of housekeeping before we wrap things up. Again, just to go over the places where you can find us, motorsport101.net. We are on youtube.com slash motorsport101, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101, twitter.com forward slash motorsport underscore 101. And if you wish to support the show financially and be one of our fine patron backers, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Our personal handles for the crew, myself at RJ O'Connell, Ryan at Ryan Eric King, and the absent Andre Harrison, who will be back at Harrison 101 HD. So for Andre Harrison, for Ryan Eric King, for everybody who has been listening in, I'm RJ O'Connell saying thank you so much, and we'll see you on the next episode Later, y'all. Saranara. Bye. <laughs>